Every time I come, I find it more and more difficult to sit in the chair and get out of the chair. So I think that may be speaking of, that may be speaking of something greater. As I <clears throat> have opportunity to preach to our hearts on today, I generally come and I go until I'm tired. But I've been given a bit of a brotherly nudge that I should keep it a little less lengthy as, um, <clears throat> as I often do. I am so thankful to be with you this morning and to share with you from God's word as many of our brethren gather together on this Lord's Day around the country, our county throughout the world, we pray that the gospel is preached to them, that they may be strengthened by the Lord Jesus and his spirit. Today's sermon is entitled, Our Humility Found in the Humiliation of Christ, coming from Philippians chapter number two, verses two through eight. Let us turn there as we read in the word of God. Philippians chapter number two, verses two through eight, and the word of God reads, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourself, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even a death on a cross. Let those who have ears hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The key words for our sermon today is humble, significant, and interests. For all of us in one form or another, we have been face to face with situations that seem to be unbearable. Because of our pride and desire to win a discussion or an argument. For some, that discussion and argument arose between our spouse, our children, parents and friends, neighbors, and for many of us, between the fellowship of those who labor together with us in Christ. Like fierce and ferocious lions trapped in the heat of battle, we fight with every effort to win. That is to be heard, to be understood, or simply to justify our positions. 
The question now arises, where does this behavior derive? It finds its source and its seat in pride. You might ask, what is pride? Pride is defined as haughtiness, arrogance, the character of one with a swollen estimate of oneself, his own powers, his own merit that causes him or her to look down on others. Jesus says concerning this type of behavior and action that his root is found in sin. Matthew chapter number seven, our Lord says that these sins, including pride, flows from a sinful heart. John the Apostle in 1 John chapter 2 and verse number 16 says that for those who continually walk in such prideful arrogance as a lifestyle, as a manner of living, that the love of the Father is not in him. James goes on to put the cherry on top, so to speak, in James chapter 4 and verse number 6 when he says that God himself opposes the proud. But he does give grace to the humble. What then is the antidote to such ungodliness? That antidote is humility. We then must ask ourselves, what is humility? Humility is defined as having a humble opinion of oneself. A deep sense of one's littleness. Modesty, lowliness of mind. This type of humility is not to be confused with false humility. We all know that. For many of us who have simply been a part of other churches, it is the masquerading of humility. Where through external actions perceived by others, we appear to be humble, but internally We are prideful, we are arrogant, we are boastful. This false humility the Apostle Paul speaks of in Colossians chapter number 2, verses 18 and verses 23, when he speaks of the Pharisees who through their external piousness would appear to be righteous. But because it was rooted in the works of the flesh, their self-pious endeavors... They're masquerading and pretending to be humble. It was only a show. It was only a farce. Thomas Watson in his sermon on the Beatitudes says of this humble character, this humble life of a believer, that it sits, humility sits, as it were, as a moderator in the soul, quieting and giving a check to the distempered emotions of our life. Again, Thomas Watson says that humility has in it a divine sweetness, as it were, a beauty of sorts, able to bring credit to religion. It wins upon one's soul. In our sermon today, we will examine the example of humility. 
its implications in the body of Christ. And the source from which we are to draw our strength when we feel dry and unwanting in this area. When we seem to be without strength. When the situation that calls for our humility produces in us an era of pride, what do we do? How are we to respond? It is in our sermon as we examine the Apostle Paul's letter to the church at Philippi that he will give us the only example by which we are to define Christian humility. Not only is it the example, but for the believing one, it is the source whereby we draw our strength. We have all been face to face with various circumstances and situations that we can all agree that we have not responded so well to. We have not responded in a Christian way. We are all guilty of that. We have all become, at one point or another, guilty of selfishness. Where the action of the day required that we submit, that we lower ourselves. What does the flesh desire to do? It desires to exalt itself and say, I will be heard. You will listen to me. We see that with children who take temper tantrums with their parents, right? You go through the grocery store, and as my kids were much younger, we would go through the grocery store, and I would push the cart, and here's the four of them falling behind me like uh, little soldiers, they would say. And all of a sudden, one day, we were in the Kroger, and my son looks over at this young boy who is with his parents. And I'll never forget it. The little boy is pulling everything off of the shelf because he wants the candy. And I never forget, my son may have been about five, and he looks at me and he says, Daddy, that boy needs a spanking. <laughs> and for those of you who know my son, he knows all too well what a spanking is. <laughs> but this is how we respond within the church. When the Apostle Paul writes the letter to the church at Philippi, it, it, makes, me, it makes me weep sometimes to think that he is, he is in, in prison at this point to the point of house arrest, and he writes chapter 2 of Philippians. Many of us would like to think that if we were on death row, so to speak, if we were uh, getting ready to stand before the magistrate for, for our life, that we would write something uh, as we see it, just a, just a little bit more deep, right? We would tell about all the spiritual mysteries. We would talk about everything. But here in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul draws our heart to Christian humility. It goes to show the great weight that this plays within the local church. No local church can be healthy if the work of the Spirit in humbling our hearts is not active. We love our spouses, but they know how to tweak and push that button, right? We love our children, but they know how to push that button. 
We love our coworkers, and they really know how to push that button. Are we naive to think that as we're as we're becoming one, as Jesus prayed in John chapter 17, as he prays to the father to make his church one? Are we naive to think that that does not come with challenge? It is such a difficulty that the Apostle Paul spends a great deal of time encouraging the church to humble themselves and to prefer one before the other. He spends a great part of chapter number two, not only commending the church to such greatness. Not only does he commend them to this, but he then gives them the example and the source from which and by which they can draw strength to do this great task. I am not naive to think. That living out the gospel as a community is apple pie and lemonade. It is work. It is work that may make us cry. It is work that may make us feel as if we are taking the advantage of. It is work that may cause us at times to feel unappreciated. It is work at times that may make us feel unloved. But the Apostle Paul will show us the example. That is the person of Christ and his work. That though they 2,000 years spat upon him and call him a son of adultery, though they called him Beelzebub, though they sought to undermine his work and his ministry, he did not exalt himself to his rightful throne. But he continued to humble himself and commit his life to those who sought his death. Isn't that the model by which we ought to follow? As we gather together in Christian community to commit ourselves to those who at times seem like they're not for our good who at times cause us to feel that maybe we're not appreciated. What do we do? How do we respond? Well, because of uh, the frailty of our flesh, because of the sin that we were all born and shaping in, the natural response is to what? To become divisive, to, to run, to scatter, right? That is our natural bent. But the Spirit of God calls us to something that supernaturally we must be empowered to do. That is to humble ourselves. To think little of ourselves in that particular situation. And so we find ourselves in verse 2. Of chapter 2 of Philippians. It is at this point that the Apostle Paul asked the church at Philippi to do something for him. 
Notice at this point, he doesn't, he, he, he doesn't state that I want you to send me something. Notice at this point that he does not charge the church with doing something necessarily physical for him. He asked the church to complete his joy. Complete his joy by doing what? You might ask. Again, this man is under house arrest. He is going to stand on trial for his life. He doesn't write for a chapter and ask them simply to pray for him. It is not a me, myself, and I plea. In verse 2, he asked them to make sure that there is no lack in my joy by being of the same mind. Having the same love, being in full accord with one another. Why is this so important in the local church? It is because everything that is earthly wars against the church of Christ. It wants to see her demise. It wants to see her destruction. Christ tells us that the gates of hell will rise up against it. The forces of Satan's kingdom will seek to destroy her. But it will not prevail. Why won't it prevail? Because we are strong? Because we are mighty? No. It is because he has shed his blood. His spirit lives within his church. And his spirit will never let his bride fail. How so? The Apostle Paul is leading us down this road. Because we, as a people of Christ, as a church of the living God, it is the spirit of God that will lead us on to oneness. Being revealed in the same love. The same action and the same mind. What is that love action in mind? It is Christ's conformity. Until we all look like him. Could it be that the one sitting next to you, could it be that the one of your own household, could it be that God is using that to conform you? And so it is our natural response to fight against it. It is our natural response to desire to be heard and understood. It causes great turmoil, not only within the home, but within the local church. Paul asked them in verse 2 to do something that he knew they were capable of. He asked them to do something in verse 2 that he knew they were capable of. And he will go on in verse number 5 to tell them how he knew that they were capable of this. James, how is it possible that we can be of full accord? How is it possible that we can be of the same love? How is it possible that hundreds of people can be of the same mind? It is because it is the mind of Christ that has been communicated to his church. If you have his spirit, you can be of the same mind. 
You can be on one accord. Paul says, complete my joy. It is in verse number three. He tells us the antithesis to one mind union within a church. He tells us the antithesis to love and walking in full accord of mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. This becomes a source of great dissension within Christ church. Rivalry, that is, looking to advance one's agenda. Is this not the, the source of, of destruction within the local church? I preached this message several months at the church because looking out among the people, I saw something that I, that I did not desire to see within the local church. That is this constant rivalry, desiring to outdo one another for accolades, for attaboys and attagirls and good job, right? That's what many of us in our sinfulness and fallenness, we look for. We look to be praised. We look to be told how great a job that we're doing. But the Apostle Paul is going to examine the humiliation of Christ. How he did not receive any of these. But for what he desired, he endured. As the writer of Hebrews says that Christ Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. When we look at the Gospels, we don't see many attaboys and out of girls for Christ. We see contempt. We see humiliation. We see accusations. But Christ does not give up. And the question is why? He humbled himself. That is, he made himself to be nothing. Because he knew that by doing this, it would produce great fruit for his kingdom. So Paul says the antithesis to this one love, this one mind, this full of cord is rivalry and or conceit that is vainglory. These two premise, these two points Destroy unity within the church, unity within the home. And if we are honest, it comes to us natural. It is natural for us to say, look at what I did. Look at me. Hear me. See me. We all, to some degree, have that middle child syndrome, don't we? See me, hear me, love me, pat me, tell me how good I am. But Paul says, that is the antithesis. To take the opposite approach to rivalry and conceit, he says, it is humility that counts others more significant than yourselves. And this... It's hard to do. 
It is hard to prefer one before yourself and really internally mean it. We say those things. We've all been to a dinner party or so, and there was one hors d'oeuvre left on the plate, and it was really, really good. And we say, no, you take it. And they say, no, you take it. And so you spend 25 seconds going back and forth as to who's going to eat the last quiche on the dish. And so you really, really want it. And you said, no, you take it. And they finally say, okay. And you walk away and say, how dare they take the last quiche? (laughs) It is the same way within the church. It is the same way within the body of Christ. Externally, we may say the right things. Externally, we may smile. And the truth is, we really can't in our flesh make ourselves low. It is hard. The flesh doesn't do that. Through the work of irresistible grace, the Holy Spirit had to overcome our condition. We were at fisticuffs and odds with God. Do we not think naturally that we won't be the same with others? Just as it was a work of the Spirit in overcoming our condition, in the work of salvation through the irresistible grace of God, it becomes that same Spirit in the work of sanctification that will overcome that rivalry and conceit. It is not found in our own efforts and merit and power. It is found in the Holy Spirit of God. Paul asks us to do something that seems unnatural. And if we can be honest, it really is to humble ourselves every time, James, all the time. Yes. Even when they're wrong, I am not supposed to act out of character. Yes, that's exactly what I'm saying. Who can do this? No one. But all of us can. Who can do this? No one, but all of us can. In our own strength, none of us can do this. But in the strength of Christ, we can. Do you think little of yourself? Do you have a humble opinion of yourself? Well, James, that's just not natural. We all ought to have a modicum of pride for ourselves. Consider Christ, as Paul is going to say. How he concealed his glory in dirt. Such that Isaiah says to look upon him, ah, it's just Jesus. But as we will examine what Isaiah says when he saw him. As we will examine what Ezekiel said when he saw him. When we will examine what Psalms 19 says of his glory and his splendor. Oh, he was beauty. He was beauty itself, but he wrapped himself in nothing. And we'll get there. Now, the Apostle Paul says in verse number three that not only ought 
We do this in humility, that is to count, our, uh, count others more significant uh, than ourselves. When we deal with this word significant, that is to, to raise above oneself. That is to say that when I look upon you as an individual, I am truly, eternally committed to your good over and above myself. How does this look? I have sought to, as we lead God's people, to set the precedent just in a very natural way within the church that when someone is out of work, we don't wait for them to say, I need help. But by counting their life more significant than ours. We run to them and say, what do you need? How can we help? When we consider this reality of humility, are we constantly thinking on the interests of Christ's church? Are we constantly thinking on its good? Are we constantly thinking on its unity and its benefit? Or are we simply coming to get what we desire and then leave selfishly? Do we come simply to drink of the fountains of water and then go our separate ways? Or do we gather some for others that they may drink also? This is counting one more significant than yourselves. It is not only thinking of how your decision may affect you, but how it would also affect God's kingdom. when we are increased in one way or the other, do we simply seek to do as the rich man with the barn to build bigger barns to hold more of our grain? Or do we rejoice that we're able to assist and help others? This is impossible to do. The question is, who can do this faithfully? None, but who can do this? All who have his spirit. And so it is. The Apostle Paul will go to belabor this point in verse number four when he says, let each of you, Christian, believers, persons born again, do not look to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. If you thought you were off the hook in verse number three, he reiterates the point in verse number four. Whose interest and care and concern do you look out for? For it is a scripture that says to us to do good to all men, especially those of the household of faith. Are we praying for his church? Are we making ourselves low to assist others? 
Where there is strife, do we seek to impart love? Where there is contention, do we add to the fuel? Do we add to the fire? Or do we constantly pray that God would grant us favor and ability to extinguish the fiery darts of Satan? The question is, who can do this? The answer is none. The question is, who can do this? All those who have a spirit. The ability to do such a work is not found in our own strength. It is unnatural. It is the antithesis to the human soul, apart from the spirit of God. We're all selfish by nature. We all desire to be heard and understood. We all desire that we should be at the forefront of loving adoration. And for many of us, it is to the destruction of Christ's body. But he has promised that it will not prevail. So if you, if I, if we find ourselves not presenting, not desiring to to see our brothers and sisters rise above ourselves, if we're not looking to put their interests and desires in many cases before ours, I'll have you know that it is in direct opposition to the work of the Spirit. And might I add, if it is in direct opposition to the Spirit, it is in direct opposition to Christ's church, it is seeking to destroy what he has shed his own blood for. How can you say such things, James? It is found in verse 5. Remember I stated earlier that the Apostle Paul does not ask them to do something that they in themselves cannot. He asked them to do what he know has already begun in them. Remember over in chapter 1, verse 6, he says, He, speaking of God that has begun the good work and you shall complete it, he is going to do it. In verse number five, he says to the church at Philippi, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What mind? A mind of oneness. A mind of loving unity. A mind of humility. It is not something that is in absentia of the Christian life. Upon that great day of salvation, he gave that to us. It has been given to us to have this mind, this mind of humility. It really is ours. The ability to hold one in higher esteem than ourselves, it really is ours. We really do have the ability to do it. Not because we have it. But because when he gave us his spirit, he also communicated to us his mind. It is in the work of sanctification that the Holy Spirit is drawing us to humble service. Christ died. He rose again. He gave us his spirit. And in that spirit is the fullness to do this work. 
So Paul does not ask them to do something that they cannot do. He is literally commending them to do and to live in a way that is consistent with who they are and have been made to be. So then the root and the source of our humble service to the church, the root and source of our humility is found in the person and work of Jesus. Have you received Christ? Has grace been communicated to your soul? Have you drank of the waters of living, of of life? Have you eaten from the bread of heaven? Do you have eternal life? If your answer is yes, then the mind of Christ has been communicated to you. And this act of humility and humble service is yours. In verse number six, the Apostle Paul says of Christ Jesus. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is before time and eternity was. The eternal son of God was. He did not hold on to his godness, as it were. That is, the beauty and the splendor of his name. He set that aside. Most willingly, He looked out upon his people that he would redeem. And he did not hold on to anything. But Paul goes on to say he made himself nothing. That is a very powerful statement. If you would turn with me really quick, and we'll bounce right back here shortly. But if you would turn with me to Isaiah chapter number 6. In the book of Isaiah, chapter number six, and verse number one. The word of God reads In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings, and with two they covered their face, and with two they covered his feet, and with two he flew. And he called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. 
Isaiah is shaken to the core of his being. To be in the presence of the majesty of Christ. Among his peers and contemporaries, he possibly could have been considered an upright man. But in the presence of the king, he is lowly and broken. He is broken by the splendor and the grandeur and the glory and the majesty of Christ. He is shaken at the beauty of him. When we consider that Isaiah now is standing in the throne room of God. Unlike us, when we beheld God face to face, we didn't shake. We didn't tremble. But we, with the Roman soldiers, pierced him in his side. He clothed his grandeur. He clothed his greatness in dirt. The greatest of humiliations. The great humiliation is that he, God, the son, condescended and became just like us. Took upon himself. Humanity. He didn't come as an adult. He came as a babe. Condescended again as coming as a babe because as a babe, he depended on his mother for milk. He condescended the more. As he grew in wisdom and stature, It was God who walked among his creation. And they didn't know who he was. He wrapped himself in human flesh. They called him a son of fornication. They call him a son of sin. Yet he continued to serve a fallen people. He came and he preached the gospel of repentance and eternal life to men and they rejected him and they stoned him and they sought to kill him at every turn. For every miracle, they accounted it to the devil. For every great act of kindness, they called him a lawbreaker. Yet he didn't say a word. He walked with 12 men and most of the time it seemed as if they didn't know who he was. But he continued to serve them in humble submission to the decree of God. And he didn't say a word. Being God wrapping his majesty in flesh heals men. Ten lepers. And only one turns back to thank God. John says we look God right in the face. We beheld his beauty. 
And many whom he walked among did not even know him. He concealed it. He condescended to the point that he concealed it so that he might bear the sins of his people. When we consider the heinousness of Judas's treachery, although it had to be performed that the scripture might be fulfilled. Judas did not betray a man. Judas betrayed God. And yet Jesus loved him unto the end. Jesus, being God, the son goes into the garden of Gethsemane and he prays. And what does his disciples do? They fall to asleep on God. He doesn't cast them away. But he continues in his humble service and submission to the father's will. They take God, the son, they lead him to be tried in a kangaroo court of men. And the prophet said that it was like watching a lamb go to the slaughter. Just as a sheep goes to the shearers is dumb, so Christ Jesus went and he did not open his mouth. He humbled himself. He made himself nothing. Wouldn't be so bad if they stopped there, but they didn't. I often say they, but the truth is, it was us. We beat God. We, our sins, stripped away the flesh from his body. And because of his love, he endured such humiliation by the hands of his creation. And he didn't say a word. Probably wouldn't have been so bad if they stopped there, but they didn't. Psalms 19, the psalmist says that the heavens declare the glory of God, yet he concealed it in flesh, earth and clay, dirt as if it were. They beat him to a bloody pulp. They gave him his own torture device and told him to carry it, and he did. And he did not say a word. And humble submission and humility to the Father's will for the love of those whom he would redeem, for the joy that was set before him, he continued up that hill called Calvary. Carrying the very device by which they would nail him to. And as Paul says in Colossians, by nailing his hands to the cross, it canceled the debt that stood against us. And he did not say a word. Do you not understand that it was God who did this? God the Son. He carries his own torture device. For the joy that is set before him, he humbles himself and he says nothing. He could have smited his entire humanity and said that I created you and here you are to destroy me. But he doesn't open his mouth. 
They put the nails in his hand. And it probably wouldn't have been so bad if they would have stopped there. But then they put the nails in his feet and they don't even stop there. They walk by and they ridicule, they mock God. But I say they, it was really us. It was for your sin and for my sin that he did it. He did it in primary manner as obedience to the Father, but in secondary manner to redeem his people. He made himself to the lowest degree. He made himself little. He made himself like us. The God who created, upholds, and sustains the entire universe is before men. Paul says it was the fullness of the Godhead dwelling bodily with us. Through great humiliation and shame as they spat upon him, as they made him carry his own torture device, as they nailed him to the cross, as they pierced him in his side, as they ridiculed him the entire time, he did not open his mouth. Paul says this mind has been communicated to you. You can suffer it well. You can be humble. You can lower yourself. Because the source by which you will do this is Christ himself. The mind of Jesus communicated and committed to you. When you say that I can't, it's really I won't. When you say I don't know how, it's really I will not. I talked to a buddy the other day who passes a church in Florida and he has suffered a split within his church and he is absolutely downtrodden and destroyed. And he wanted to know why. I couldn't really give him much of an answer because I wasn't there to know what happened. But I can tell you that it started with rivalry and conceit. I can tell you the elements that were absent. It was the elements of humility. The same humility of Christ. Paul says, look at God, what he does on the cross. How then can you as a local church not do the same? When he writes to the church at Philippi, he is writing to God's people. You can do it because it is your mind. It is the mind that has been given to you by his spirit. What then is the implication to the local church. What divides us? What separates us? What causes us to break rank and flee? It is not situations. It is not issues. It is the lack of humility. It is thinking that we are due something that the truth is we are not. It is thinking that we are owed something that the truth is we are not. God is worthy to be obeyed because he is God. He. But what did he do? He made himself nothing. Became like us. Condescended to the point of death. 
suffering the worst form of torture, yet he opened out his mouth. What can we not endure with one another? We can endure everything. We can work everything out. There is nothing too hard to overcome. How do we know? Because the mind of God that endured the heinousness of our sin lives within us. So it's not a matter of we cannot. It is a matter of we will not. So the source of our humility is found in the cataclysmic humiliation of Christ. That is, his entire creation turned against him and he opened out his mouth. But for the joy that was set before him, he, Christ Jesus, endured the cross. For me and for you, how can we not bear with one another? Let us pray. Eternal Father, heaven and earth shall pass away, but your word will stand. Fathers, we have not turned over every stone that we desired for the sake of of time. But Father, I pray that our hearts will be compelled to see the beauty and the majesty of Christ's humiliation. His condescension to become like us. The beauty and splendor of his majesty. He wraps it in dirt for us. Father, may this be the source from which we draw strength to humble ourselves to one another. For we know that you resist the proud, but you give grace to the humble. That humility is a source and a tool, Father, that you would make us to know by which Christ's church is strengthened against the gates of hell. Father, where there be strife, we pray that you would deliver it from our hands. Father, where there be disunity, we pray that you would bring unity. Where there be disagreements, we pray that you would bring peace. Not the peace of the world, but the peace that Christ has given to us. May we think little of ourselves, Father. We cannot do it in our own strength, God. But Father, you, through the work of the Spirit, can do it in us giving us strength to do it. Father, let us rest in this eternal truth that as we look at what Christ has endured, that we can endure likewise. We thank you for the truth of your word that is able to cleanse the tainted heart It is able to save the stoniest of hearts. Father, help us not to trust in external means, 
but help us to trust in Christ alone who is capable of making us one. Father, we pray that you do it in such a way that no man can get the glory. Would you do these things, Father, for your glory and for our joy? For truly, Father, you do all things well. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.